Humans are made up of four trillion cells, all packed together in just the right places. We like to imagine ourselves as the pinnacle of animal complexity, mighty, invincible. And yet here we are, millions are sick, thousands dead, world economies cratered, all because of a sub-microscopic entity, a non-living organism with just a couple of dozen genes. A virus. Viruses sit at the edge of our definition of living things. I don't consider them alive. But I think these things are alive. Researchers called them trouble wrapped in a protein. We're in a constant tug of war with, with viruses. The thing is, they're never going to go away. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is turning out to be a little molecular packet of hellfire. Every day, we're learning the new ways it wreaks havoc on its human hosts. People infected with the coronavirus can suffer a very wide range of symptoms. Fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Muscle pain, headache, sore throat, and loss of taste or smell. Growing number of patients with skin problems. They're calling COVID toes. A symptom being reported in children. Unexpected inflammation throughout their bodies. But many virologists say this coronavirus is just doing its virus thing. Viruses need a place to live, so they seek us out. They finesse their way into our DNA and set up little factories and spew out multitudes of themselves. Because of this pandemic, we hate them right now. We want viruses gone. But careful what you wish for. We're learning that some of our own genetic material actually comes from an ancient virus. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, how viruses shaped our DNA and how they may fuel evolutionary changes that will shape our future. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. From the Wall Street Journal, this is The Future of Everything. I'm Janet Babin. If you've ever had a cold, you've likely had a virus, and you're probably familiar with all the trouble they can cause. What is a virus? I call it a molecular package. It's really a very condensed, very economically made structure of a bunch of molecules. This is Dr. Terry Shores. She's a professor at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and she wrote the book on viruses, an 800-page textbook, actually. At one millionth of an inch long, viruses are about a thousand times smaller than bacteria. Shore says we first realized they existed in the late 1800s. It just fascinates me that there's this invisible world that has a lot more control over us than we realize. It happened when scientists were studying a nasty tobacco leaf disease now called tobacco mosaic virus. It first surfaced in the Netherlands. The plant leaves would get discolored and mottled and then die, and whole farms were going under. To study this stuff, researchers would grind up infected tobacco leaves and pass them through a porcelain filter trying to isolate the poison. Usually bacteria stayed on top, and the rest of the concoction passed through the filter. 
The remaining gunk was unable to infect new leaves. But this time, even the strained liquid got new plants sick. So whatever was making the tobacco plant sick was getting past this ultra-fine filter. But they couldn't see anything. After many years and lots of other experiments, another scientist managed to make crystals that contained viruses. Finally, in 1938, scientists could actually see viruses when the powerful electron microscope was first invented. Coronaviruses, the family that SARS-CoV-2 is in and the one that's causing COVID-19, Dr. Shore says they were first observed in chickens in the 1930s and in humans in the 1960s. They've probably been around, you know, for over 500, 1,000 years. And, you know, if we look back in our history in the 1960s when they were first isolated from humans and also animals, they would infect, like, liver or they would infect, like, your GI tract. And the first human coronaviruses, they just cause a common cold. Dr. Shores says most people by the age of one have already been exposed to a lot of coronaviruses. They're part of a family of life. If you consider viruses to be alive, many don't. That's the most abundant on Earth. Viruses are found just about everywhere. They're in glaciers, crystal caves, volcanoes, the ocean. When we try to count the number of viruses that are around, it's actually a hard thing to do. This is Neil Shubin, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Chicago. But we can get estimates for how many viruses, say, lie in the ocean. It's a number that is just ginormous. It's actually a number that's larger than the number of stars in the known universe. That is how many viruses are around us. Despite their abundance, Shubin says viruses have been surprisingly challenging to study. You know, in terms of the number of genes they have and the number of proteins and so forth, it's just a handful of things, really. And that's what makes them so pernicious. But Shubin says over millennia, some of these viruses have actually ended up making our lives better. His new book touches on the role viruses have played in our evolution. And it appears that they've had a vital part in shaping our genome. But what's remarkable about it is not just their number and their sheer diversity, but how evolvable they are. Our DNA contains protein-coding genes. They send instructions to the cells that help us to develop, survive, and reproduce. But our genome, our complete set of DNA, keeps surprising researchers. Turns out that 8% of our genome were from ancient viruses that invaded our genome, got incorporated inside our genome, and no longer infect us. And the number may even be higher than that. Instead of infecting us, Shubin says ancient viral genetic material now helps us to perform essential functions. And discoveries about these weird molecular partnerships are ongoing. Shubin says one of the first happened a couple of years ago in Jason Shepard's lab. My name is Jason Shepard. I'm an associate professor at the University of Utah uh, in the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy. Shepard's team was studying memory genes in mice to find out how cells in the brain store information. They were focusing on the ARC gene that is connected to long-term memory creation in mammals. And so if you take this gene out of mice, they look normal, the brain looks normal for the most part, but they just can't remember anything, so they can't store any information. Basically, mice without their ARC gene have trouble learning. And there's evidence that humans who have mutations in ARC genes have cognitive deficits. So we think this one gene is very key for 
memory consolidation, you know, making long-term memories especially. And so we've been trying to figure out what the protein is doing in the brain while you learn. How does it convert short-term memories into long-term memories? So Shepard isolated the proteins that the ARC gene makes, which is what you do if you're studying this stuff. And one day Shepard's lab tech popped the ARC proteins under a powerful electron microscope. They call it the EM scope. And they couldn't believe what they saw. He came to me and he was like, I'm seeing these weird objects under the EM scope and I don't know what to make of them. You know, take a look. And so then when he showed me them, I was like, you know, what the hell are these? These are, this is crazy. (laughs) The brain proteins they were looking at were much larger than they should have been. Shepard says they looked like little capsules, like similar to the shell a virus makes called a capsid. When we took pictures, we saw these large soccer ball structures that were... Soccer ball? Soccer ball structures. Well, they looked like soccer balls. Shepard pulled out his virology textbook to compare photos. Yep, still looked like a virus. And then that's when I took it to my colleagues and said, you know, what do you think these are? And they were like, well, that's a virus. <laughs> that's HIV. Yeah, that's, right? that looks like HIV. What happened, what happened to your <laughs> protein purification uh, that you've got viruses in them? Shepard was like, what the heck is a brain protein doing looking like a virus? His colleagues thought that the slides were somehow contaminated with HIV. But no, it was a brain protein. It's not often that one finds something in the brain that looks like a virus that's not a virus. In fact, it's like never, like never before. It's almost like the classic stereotyped uh, view of a scientist that as they're making this discovery, they, they shout out Eureka. <laughs> the way the Ark looked like a virus made Shepard think maybe it would behave like one? That's coming up. I'm Janet Babin. This is the future of everything. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Jason Shepard's team at the University of Utah discovered brain proteins that assemble into soccer ball-like capsules. This ARC protein looked a lot like the HIV virus with a similar shell to protect its genetic material. The question was, did it just look the same or did it also act the same? HIV is a retrovirus, what's known as an RNA virus. And that means it inserts a copy of its own genome into the DNA of a host cell that it invades and changes the genome, the genetic material of that cell. To do that, HIV virus proteins go from cell to cell in the body of their host, and they have these little capsule-like structures that protect what's inside. So this capsid structure uh, in viruses can transport its own, the viral RNA or DNA. ARC proteins in the brain carry RNA, that genetic information likely involved in creating long-term memory. 
When mice lack arc genes, they can't remember stuff long term, like how to get through a maze they learned the day before. But we don't know for sure everything this gene does in humans. We think that in the brain, arc is making a, this capsid structure, and then it's transporting RNA from one cell to another cell, and that whole process could be involved in, in this memory consolidation. Shepard thinks arc protein is telling our neurons which ones should and should not be involved in making a certain memory. Arc genes are transporting that information to new cells, and to be clear, non-viral RNA doesn't usually shuttle around like that. Shepard says that might be why ARC has a protective coating similar to what the HIV virus has. But his team is still confirming the contents of the information ARC is sending. So we are trying to figure out what, it, what kind of RNA is being transported, what's that signal saying to, to the neuron that picks up the capsid, and how these capsids assemble, how specific the, the, the cargo is. What Shepard is pretty sure of is that these ARC genes are ancestors of viruses in the same family as HIV. He thinks mammals got this retrovirus at some point in our history, and it slowly evolved into a brain gene over 400 million years to help us retain long-term memories. But it's still unclear why it needs to look and act like a virus to do that. What we are working on and others are working on is why has this gene retained this viral-like biology and what kind of function does it actually play in the brain and the cells in the brain? Memory is fundamental to human brain function. And if Shepard's right, we'll be one step closer to understanding it, realizing for the first time how memories are made. But Shepard's revelation was big for another reason. Before this, we had no idea that the cells in our brain could make something that looks like a virus. And Shepard says this co-opting of ancient viral genes appears to be more than a one-off. I think that we're going to find that many genes have, have viral origins similar to ARC. But we're actually hunting to see whether there are other ARC-like genes that can influence brain function. And in fact, we think we found another gene family called PNMA, but really nothing's known about them. But the origins of that family seem to be very similar to ARC. The expression pattern of those genes in the brain seem very similar. So we're quite excited to follow those up and see if we can discover completely new biology. Shepard's discovery set the stage for this idea that cells in the body can sometimes communicate in viral-like ways, and that they evolved to be able to do that from the litter viruses left behind. The thinking is that there's this constant tug of war going on among microbes, viruses, bacteria, humans, and animals, and it ends up helping us evolve. Neil Shubin, the author and evolutionary biologist, says, We like to think of ourselves as being at the top of the food chain, independent, self-sufficient. But in reality, we are dependent on these sub-microscopic little tiny you know, bits of genetic material or tiny little bacteria for our own health and our own well-being. I mean, I find it stunning when you think about how a tiny little piece of genetic material wrapped in a, wrapped in a membrane can change the entire world. Shubin's new book, Some Assembly Required, Four Billion Years of Evolution, offers more detail into Jason Shepard's discovery. 
If long-term memory originated from fragments of an ancient virus our ancestors survived, then researchers say maybe the diseases we're surviving now could turn up in our genetic makeup in thousands of years, performing some vital task. Shepard and his team will be back in the lab once the quarantine from the novel coronavirus is over. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is our digital director. Sound design for this episode is by Debbie Daughtry. Casey Georgie is our producer. Kateri Yokum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.